0: son-in-law Bob, Bobby, who's with us tonight. He comes to the different Bible studies from time to time to check up on me and see if I'm teaching the same thing. But, uh, glad to have him with us this evening. If we go through the third chapter, the second and third chapters of Revelation very quickly, last week at night. I want to look at the fourth chapter. I uh, had prepared an outline and Norm was gracious enough to run it off. And then I got to the point of preparing for the study, and I realized that there was something that we needed to deal with between the end of the church age and the tribulation. And that's that period we call the rapture, when the church is taken up out of the earth. And in the overview of the book of Revelation that I gave uh, initially, uh, it was in the fourth chapter. So I just almost breezed right through the fourth chapter, So, I uh, prepared some other uh, guidelines for us this evening uh, that relate to the doctrine of the rapture. As we begin this study, we looked at the doctrine of dispensations. My informing you that I approach the scripture from a dispensational viewpoint, that is, believing that God has determined particular periods of time in which He has appointed specific stewards and given uh, specific revelation for which they are possible, uh, looking at those seven periods of time as we initiated our study. And in the dispensational view is the separation uh, between Israel and the church. Those who do not hold a dispensational approach to Scripture have a tendency to, to substitute the church for Israel after Israel was cut off. And they see blessings and covenants and provisions, Promises that were given to Israel as relating also now to the church. And as I indicated earlier, I do not hold that particular viewpoint and do not believe that to be scripturally sound. And so between Genesis, or Revelation, excuse me, the wrong end of the spectrum, between Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 5, we have Revelation chapter 4 that is a transition from talking about the church as it fulfills its ministry upon the earth and to the time that the tribulation begins. And in Revelation chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, then we find the church is caught up into heaven. Because there are no details given right in the Revelation account or very little detail given there, I felt it uh, necessary to uh, at least pause here and take a, a side trip into some other passages of Scripture and look at some things relative to the rapture of the church. In my initial the introduction to Revelation, I also indicated that uh, I hold the pre-millennial view uh, in eschatology, escha meaning last things, and ology meaning study, the study of last things. And that is that Christ will come previous to the millennial ring. Uh, I can hardly imagine anyone else holding any other position, but there are those who who hold that there will be a thousand years of perfect peace and then Christ will come and establish his reign. And then the all millennial view which says the thousand years is not to be taken literally but figuratively. One day with the Lord is is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day and they take that out of context and try to make it re- relate then to the millennial reign of Christ and saying that Christ is just going to come and that's going to be it. Previous however to his coming in landing upon the earth and establishing the millennial kingdom uh, is the doctrine of the removal of the church from the earth, what we refer to as the rapture of the church. And in the study of, of eschatology or doctrine of last things, there is not the use of that word rapture itself in our Bible. It's a term that has been developed to express what occurs, and we're going to look at some of that this evening. Among those who hold the uh, position of a rapture of the church, and they are by and far the largest percentage of Bible scholars today, there are three different interpretations. One is that the rapture uh, will occur before the tribulation. They call it the pre-tribulationist. The other is that it will occur, uh, the next is that it will occur in the middle of the tribulation at the three-and-a-half-year point where there has been some tribulation but before the great tribulation starts and then the other position that holds that no it will be after the tribulation the church will go through the tribulation and uh, because the scripture is definitive in in the church rising to meet christ in the air they see as christ makes his return to the earth to land on the earth they see the church being caught up with him making a u-turn with him and coming back down now i've never been able to get him any of them to give me an explanation of that, but their logic is the Bible doesn't explain it. We can't explain it. And, uh, but they, So they hold that position that the church will go through the tribulation. Uh, I and the Apostle Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, to be a little facetious, hold the pre-tribulationist view. Uh, I think the scripture is, is quite clear that the rapture will occur before the tribulation uh, takes place. And so we're going to look at that. And in, we'll introduce that with the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, and I'm going to get into some of the other accounts. So if you'll follow with me, we'll just do a quick reading of the fourth chapter of Revelation itself. Then we'll come back and uh, look at the details specifically as it relates to the, the rapture itself. Now if I can find what I did with my glasses. That's, thank you. I asked my wife where they were, if she had seen them one time. She said, Yes, I have. They're on your nose. So that was a little <laughs> further down, anyway. I keep them a my boot and on my nose and on the floor and just anywhere else. So, yeah. <laughs> I knew I had them earlier, so they had to be not too far away. The fourth chapter of Rev- Revelation begins then after this. That term after this is one of the key terms that helps us understand that a period of time has elapsed. And in our study last week we looked at the uh, church age. In the study of that we looked at seven different distinct periods of the church uh, history as it was prophesied prophetically uh, before it occurred in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We saw each church uh, represented a particular period of time And so after those periods of time have occurred, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Again, the term hereafter, referring to after this period of time has ended, there are going to be some things that occur. If in fact then we do Recognize and accept that the seven letters to the seven churches represent a prophetic panorama of the history of the church as I taught and and hold, then we will see that the tribulation and all the events that occur uh, during the tribulation take place after the end of the church age, identified by the term after this and again by the things which must be hereafter. You may remember, but let me jog your memory back in the first chapter uh, John, as John was instructed to write. Uh, he was given uh, some information concerning some different periods of time uh, in that instruction to write. The uh, identification of that is given to us uh, in chapter 1 when you know, I believe it must be down about verse 11 uh well, let's go to verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me great voices of a trumpet saying, Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, to Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the foot Gird about the paths with a golden girdle. And then we have that description that is given, uh, follows down through uh, verse 16. And in verse 17 he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Then he says in verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen. And the things that are and the things that shall be hereafter. Again, that word hereafter. The visit uh, thou hast seen identifies the original view that he had of the throne room of God uh, as the uh, vision began to unfold. The things that are are the events of the church age uh, that we have studied uh, in the seven letters. And then the things which shall be hereafter are the events of tribulation that are going to follow, culminating then finally in the uh, millennial reign of, of Christ and the great white throne judgment. So verse nine, uh, harmonized with what we have in uh, chapter 4, uh, of verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, identifies then that we are talking about a different period of time. In verse 2, he says in uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one set upon the throne. And he that sat uh, was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. We mentioned the rainbow earlier in our study as we talked about the seven attributes of God. We'll come back and look at that. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, And upon the seats uh, I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. And again, we talked the seven attributes of God. The seven spirits of God is a reference to those seven attributes. And I know you've got them memorized and can spout them right off. I say... Facetiously, we'll probably repeat them tonight. And before the throne was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts. That's a poor rendering, it's four living creatures, full of eyes before and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third living creature had a face as a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures had each one of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The term holy, holy, holy. where you find it in Scripture. If it's mentioned more than once, it's mentioned three times. We used to sing a song, or occasionally still do in various groups, uh, a new song that the Gaithers wrote uh, holy holy, but it only has two. I always objected to that and and uh, usually received the uh, ire of those that I objected to about it, uh, strain it in a net and swallow a camel type thing. But there are three personalities of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And holy, holy, holy emphasizes that triune aspect of God. Holy, holy is leaving out one of them somewhere along the line. And if there's only one use of the word holy, it's talking about one specific personality. Uh, of the Godhead, now, I haven't given up that theology with the Gaithers, and uh, probably never will. But uh, I like the the old version that we have of uh, the doxology, "Holy, Holy, Holy," and some of the other songs that we sing because it does bring out that threefold aspect of the Trinity, which is manifest here uh, in the Scripture. He identifies four living creatures, and they're they're unusual. One is like a lion. One is like uh, a calf, literally like an ox, the another is like a man, and the other is like a flying eagle. We find uh, that reference also in the book of Ezekiel, in that order. Uh, we want to come back and look at that in a little while. Uh, as long as I can stall it, I've got some kind of job security, and so I'll just put it off for a little while. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, And when those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before him, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Well, let's go back then to the first part of the chapter where we find a transition in verse one after this after the the panoramic view of the the coming history of the church which we know now from our historical viewpoint and John certainly had no way of knowing declared unto him at least he did not record it that it would cover at least nineteen hundred uh, and sixty years we're into the 1900th and 61 year uh, since the uh, resurrection and ascension of Christ and uh, this prophecy was given in 96 uh, AD some uh, 66 years after the crucifixion resurrection and ascension of Christ and we know that that period of time then covered at least 1,960 years. Uh, Probably covers a period of time roughly 2,000 years. It seems like God works in in that time frame that uh, these various events have happened in in a time frame of roughly 2,000 years. Need to bear in mind that our calendars are not always exactly on. For instance, I've said that Christ was was crucified, uh, rose from the grave, and ascended in 30 A.D. We all probably have heard from various times that he was 33 and a half years old when he died. Well, if A.D., B.C. and A.D. are marked by the birth of Christ, then we've got a three and a half year problem there. And we do know that the Roman calendar is off by at least three and a half years. And uh, the we know that it was in 30 A.D. by our calendar that Christ was crucified. And so we're talking uh, about a calendar, uh, the calendar being off by about three and a half year period of time that we know of. We do not know about the, the dates that, that go back beyond that. There's always calendar problems uh, there. But roughly... Uh, Time-framed in about 2,000 years now just because he's always done it in the past doesn't mean when this 2,000 year period is up zap He's here, and it's all over uh, There's nothing to us to establish that because he's done it he is going to continue to do it as a matter of fact in the millennium He does not do it in the millennium. It's a thousand years that he's going to rule and reign but there is clear evidence that certainly we are living in that last period of time and and it would appear uh, that that may be the case of somewhere around that 2,000-year mark. Again, we're going to see uh, an end uh, to this particular uh, period of time. He says, Behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet. A trumpet is is used symbolically throughout Scripture for calling uh, to assembly or calling uh, someone to come forward or or to come before the king. And uh, we're going to see here uh, that it is certainly used in calling the church. We also see at the end of the tribulation when God regathers the Jews out of every nation under heaven wherever they've been scattered and brings them back and establishes them in the land uh, of Israel and rules and reigns over them and over all the earth that the Feast of Trumpets, the Old Testament Feast of Trumpets, is going to be fulfilled. And the trumpets are going to blow again at that time. Uh, Paul talks about uh, the trumpet blowing at rapture. and So wherever wherever we see trumpets, there is a recognition of a call to assembly or a call to come forward. And here, uh, John hears that the first thing that he heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with him, which said, Come up hither. The, uh, the term come up hither uh, could well apply to the, the church itself as well as to uh, the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at some things in some other passage scripture uh, in just a moment now uh, that will uh, perhaps help us identify with that a little clearer. And then he says, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. All right, let's look then Uh, at this doctrine of the church disappearing uh, at that particular point and uh, going uh, into heaven. The first that I'm going to pass around is entitled The Rapture of the Church. Uh, Please understand this is not by any stretch of the imagination designed to be a uh, thorough of the doctrine of the rapture, Uh, even uh, a good healthy study of the doctrine of the rapture, but simply an introduction to the doctrine of the rapture that we might be able to relate to it here. Uh, time doesn't allow in the time frame that we're working uh, for us to uh, go into any great details on it. But it was my intent simply to give you an overview uh, to serve as an introduction uh, to the rapture. I've given in uh, nine points here uh, an overview, and in this point, uh, I've given a definition. The rapture is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for the believers at the end of the church age. And uh, in parentheses you see body of Christ. The church is identified in Scripture as the body of Christ. And uh, so we have the the reference to the rapture of coming to take up the body of Christ from uh, the earth called the rapture. In that appearance he will be visible only to believers. He will not land on the earth He will come in the air and remain in the air uh, where we will join him in the air. Uh, There are a number of different words for air uh, in the Greek language, and the one that is used here is a word that refers to the atmosphere, uh, that we will join him in the atmospheric heaven uh, as he appears to the believers. He'll be joined by, uh, in the air then by all church age believers, those who, have, those who are described in Scripture as being asleep. And that term asleep it never refers uh, to the soul sleeping, but to the body sleeping. Uh, the term it was first introduced by the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry when he talked about Lazarus. You remember uh, Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus had uh, been taken seriously ill. And they sent word to the Lord to come into healing, and the Lord did not go. Uh, A little afterwards, he told his disciples, uh, let's go now and see Lazarus because he's asleep. And his disciples said, well, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he's doing better. And he said, well, you don't understand, he's dead. And so he used that term the first time uh, for uh, believers' uh, death and identifies it as being asleep. There are some who have interpreted that then, that there is no consciousness of the soul. That just does not harmonize with with all the other passages of Scripture. Uh, Paul said to be absent in the flesh, to be face to face with the Lord. Uh, all the illustrations the Lord gave uh, of the afterlife life upon physical death, as well as those that are found in the New Testament, talk about a, uh, a conscious alertness and awareness. So at physical death, it's apparent that the, soul and spirit are separated from the body and go into the presence of God and the body goes back to the dust from whence it was taken. Uh, that, was not, that was held in, in a state of, of uh, hold, apparently for Lazarus, so the Lord could, could bring him back in that body uh, four days after uh, he had died. But we find that term then throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the term being asleep. Uh, refers then to the death of a believer, where the soul has been separated uh, from the body. All church age believers, those that are asleep and those that are alive, those that have have died and those that are alive, are going to be caught up to meet Christ in the air. Now, the Scripture helps us understand a little more about that uh, when, in First Thessalonians chapter four, verses fourteen through sixteen, it identifies that the spirits of those who have died in Christ while they immediately go to be with Christ in heaven when he comes at the rapture he is going to bring them back with him and we find that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 let's just go to 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, for a few minutes this evening that we might uh, look at that and it's a passage of scripture that is certainly key uh, in our study of the rapture uh, Paul the Apostle uh, writes the church at Thessalonica he had already been there he had taught them this doctrine he writes them here and then he writes them a second letter second Thessalonians uh, in which they had become confused about some of the issue and thinking that they were in the tribulation and he straightens them out on that and so we're going to be looking in both of these uh, epistles this evening but in First Thessalonians let me begin reading with verse 13 and probably the more most prominent place we have heard or occasion which we have heard this passage is at the uh, funeral or memorial service of a believer. But I would not have you ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep. There's our term. That you sorrow not even as others who have no hope. And by the way, the word hope is one of the most poorly translated uh, New Testament words that we have. Uh, And it wasn't poorly translated in 1611. In 1611 when the King James translation was finished, Uh, the word hope uh, meant uh, Had a little different definition than it does in our language today It's based upon the Greek word Elpidia and it means confident expectation Confident expectation that's a little different than our normal association uh, Of the word hope today our English language has changed somewhat. I remember in high school uh, one of my English teachers uh, Thought she would have some fun with the class and make a point uh, as well and she brought in a book one day, just as class was beginning, a big, uh, a large book. And the name uh, of the book was on the, on the back binding. And she set it down so all the class could see it, and then went out into the hall. The words, of the title on the back of the book was, The Vulgar Words of the Spanish Language. And all the guys, of course, with the exception of me, uh, made a dive for that book I mean there was just a mad rush wasn't it just guys there were some gals involved too made a mad dash for that book the vulgar words of the Spanish language the teacher then came back into the class and uh, the students were deeply deep, because it was nothing but a Spanish dictionary because the word vulgar in its original usage in our English language meant common the common words of the Spanish language and it still does we use the word vulgar it still has the, the definition of common does it not mr. English <laughs> but we attach a different usage to it well there are many words in the in the New Testament that but when they translate it they, they did a better job than it appears that they did to us today because of the change of the language but this word hope means confident expectation not just uh, Hoping without any substance, but a confident expectation. Even as others which have n- do not have that confident expectation, he says, that we all not sorrow as those. For if we believe that Jesus died, and by the way, in the Greek he uses a first class conditional clause for the word if, and it means since. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Notice he's going to bring them with him. So while Paul has said to be absent in the flesh, to be face to face with the Lord, when we die we immediately go to be with him at the rapture. Those that have died are in spirit form. They do not have bodies there, but in spirit form we will come back with him. And they will receive their glorified body, their resurrection body, out of the area in which it was planted. Notice this, he goes on then to say For this we say unto you, word of God, word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them. That actually means precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet, that's trumpet, of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these words. Yes, the word air means atmosphere, and the clouds certainly in the atmospheric air. The, um, the key verse here is verse 17. And uh, it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Those that have been raised, their spirits reunited with a a body, but now glorified that's come out of the uh, area in which it was planted or wherever it might have been scattered. They will be joined together and we who are alive will be instantaneously changed with a glorified resurrection body and we will arise with them, be caught up with them and meet Christ in the air. That's a completely different setting than when Christ comes at the second advent where he lands upon the earth. For at that time he doesn't come in the air, he comes on the earth, lands atop the Mount of Olives, and then establishes immediately his kingdom here upon the earth. At this point we are caught up to meet him in the air. He's going to come in the clouds as he went in the clouds, and we are going to always be with the Lord. didn't say we're always going to be in the air with the Lord, but we're going to always be with the Lord. Uh, We will find in the study of Scripture that we go with him then into heaven Uh, and at that point experience what is called the judgment seat of Christ in which I identify as the awards banquet in the sky because it's not a time of, of judging with a sense of condemnation. It is a time of awarding or rewarding for service rendered during our earthly ministry. It'd be at that point that, that we'll lose all the wood, hay, and stubble that we've accumulated, and only the gold, silver, and precious stone uh, service to the Lord will, will get into uh, that uh, awards banquet. We will be appointed our places then of administration over his millennial kingdom and over his eternal kingdom. For we as the body of Christ will be transformed into the bride of Christ, and we will rule and reign with him not only in the thousand-year earthly reign, but in the eternal reign over the new heaven and new earth. Let's look then at the points uh, of Scripture or, or of uh, doctrine on the rapture of the church. Uh, Definition: The rapture is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for believers at the end of the church age body of Christ he will be visible only to believers will not land on the earth he'll appear in the air where he'll be joined by all church age believers 1st Thessalonians 4:17 Acts 111 Now the spirits of those who have died in Christ will be brought back by Christ and will be given resurrection bodies we've seen that in 1st Thessalonians 4:14 4, through 16 Those that are alive at that time will be changed and caught up to meet Christ in the air we see that in 1st Thessalonians 4:17 and there is a more detailed account of it in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 Verses fifty through fifty three. Church age believers will go into heaven before the judgment seat of Christ where they'll receive their rewards of service. According to it's supposed to be Second Corinthians five twenty. Excuse me, five ten. Thank you. Whenever I do that I will cite to a to a passage of scripture in James chapter three, verse two that says, All teachers make many mistakes. <laughs> That uh, we got to get in the Greek to clarify what it's saying, but it literally says all teachers make many mistakes. So that's why we're supposed to prove all things, you see. So whenever I make one that's noticeable and I get caught at it, I try to remember to cite that. At least I'm being biblical even in my mistakes. Number five, the rapture involves only church-age believers. Those who have died in Christ are raised. Old Testament saints are used at that point. Adam and Eve do not get a resurrection body yet. Abraham, no resurrection body yet. All of those from the time of Adam to the day of Pentecost in 30 AD will remain in their graves. Now their spirits are with the Lord in heaven uh, as paradise or Abraham's bosom was transferred there. But they do not come with Christ back at the rapture when he gets the church. The church is his bride. He's coming to get his bride. And in uh, marriage ritual during the time in which the scripture was written, the groom, at an unappointed time, unannounced time, went to the home of the gal he was engaged to, stole her away, and took her to his house. When they walked through his door, they were married. And then there was a marriage supper that occurred. So when Christ comes back for the church at an unannounced hour, He's going to come for his, his future bride and He's going to test His house. And when we enter into His house, we're married. We become His bride. At that point then, the wedding feast, begin. we begin to prepare for the wedding feast and we'll be talking about that a little later in our study of Revelation. The church is the bride of Christ. All other believers, from Adam to the church, from the rapture, to the end of the millennium are guests at the wedding. We are the bride and have a distinct, unique relationship with God. Israel has a unique relationship, but ours is also unusual and distinct and even greater than theirs uh, in that respect. We'll be enlarging on that a little later. So it's only church-age believers that are raised. Let me, uh, well, we're going to come back to that point uh, this evening a little later. Number six, the rapture is to be the Christian's hope and source of comfort. First Thessalonians uh, 4.18, and four eighteen. He said, "Wherefore comfort ye one another with these words, uh, when one of our can from our midst." There's tremendous comfort in knowing they are not dead in the sense of it being final; that they have simply gone to their reward. They have gone to that place that we we too look forward to going some of us long for, and others, well, they'll take it when it comes. Uh, but uh, to, to the home or country where their citizenship really is, I do not know where the term developed as it related to the cemetery as the final resting place. Scarcely do I go to a cemetery to perform a service, that I do not point out to those that are gathered there This is not a final resting place. Number one, by the word of God, it is not final. (laughs) We've already touched on that this evening. And there are multitude passages of Scripture that convince us it's not final. Number two, it's not a resting place. The body is left there, but the soul and the spirit are with God. Or in torments if they were unbelievers. And so there is no resting that goes on there. If we were to name the place, it's really a cultivated field in which a seed is planted. It's a planting place. Because Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about planting a seed, talking about the body as being a seed that's planted, and you don't plant the body that you're going to get back. Like when you plant a crop, you don't plant the crop. You plant a seed that's going to result in a, in a uh, stalk or a vine or in something that is going to produce some of that fruit. And so the body that is planted is not the one that is raised. So it's certainly not a final resting place. If anything, it's a planting place where the body is planted until Christ comes. It That original body will return to dust, rotten decay, and a new glorified body will come out from that source. Number seven, the rapture is the completion of the redemption of the body. And I put in parenthesis sanctification. Uh, we have been the word sanctification means set apart unto God for service and positionally we have been set apart unto God the moment you accepted Christ as your personal savior that moment in time was taken out of time divorced from time and perpetuated forever according to the aorist tense or it was the Greek aorist tense we don't have an aorist in the English or it was the Greek perfect tense it was an action that was completed with the result continuing forever so that positionally you are saved and you will always be saved and nothing can change that but you haven't experienced that ultimately yet we still live in a body that has an old nature that suffers and experiences pain and and all of the other hardships of life ultimately we are going to be set apart from that and that will be in the resurrection body at the rapture the church age believer remember church age believer not the Old Testament saints will receive their resurrection bodies Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 1st John chapter 3 verse 2 uh, are a couple of support passages of that number eight the time element for the rapture is not revealed I'm probably getting deep water here the deduction is that it will occur and I finally found out how to spell occur so if you've got one that didn't get it right but i got OCCUR on my outline. Uh, the deduction is that it will occur when the number of believers equals the number of fallen angels. Now, if you know how many angels there were that are fallen, that were went with Satan, and I can give you a clue, a third of all the angels, the only problem is I don't know how many angels they were originally. And if you knew how many saved people there had been since the day of Pentecost, uh, then you might be able to start pending before it was going to come. Why do I say that the, the deduction, that when the number of, of believers in the church age equal that? It's based on a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 through 22 in Colossians 2, 15. And then I very conveniently put in the Greek... <laughs> Not all that definitive in the English text. Paul uses a term uh, in which he talks about the triumph of God and and his uh, followers over, actually the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ and his followers over Satan and his followers. And in the illustration, he illustrates it by the Roman triumph. In the Roman triumph, in the, the English says triumphing over them and putting them to an open shame or something of that nature. Uh, he's illustrating the, the Roman triumph. In, in the Roman triumvirate, when the Roman soldiers came back from war, each one brought a captive. For every soldier, a captive. They marched them through the streets and publicly displayed them. And then individually, each Roman soldier beheaded his captive. Kind of gruesome, isn't it? That's the terminology that the Lord uses in the Scripture in identifying the settling of the conflict between the Lord Jesus Christ and Satan and his followers. And, and I believe there's ample uh, evidence for us to, to arrive at that deduction uh, when we spend some time in it uh, to see that for a church age believer or forever fallen uh, angel under Satan, there will be a church age believer. And we will be involved in the removal of that demon from this earth at the end of the battle of Armageddon and the casting of that demon into the lake of fire and brimstone. So it's a deduction based upon the terminology that's used there uh, if it's to be taken literally. And uh, by this point, you have seen that I uh, am a literalist unless the scripture gives clear evidence that it's not to be taken literally there. Really a moot point as to Uh, when it's going to end or or, or to that particular parallel. Uh, But the scripture does not define when it's going to end. It talks about it being a building and the building of that being complete. It talks about it being a body and when the last member of the body is added. So there is in the mind of God at least a cutoff point at which it's going to occur. When the last believer in the church age accepts Christ as Savior, that will be the end of our age and Christ will come and take us. There's no way that we can know that. The disciples wanted to know when it was going to be. And at that point, Jesus said, the angels in heaven don't even know. Only the Father knows when that will be. And so we just must prepare and live our lives as though uh, it were going to be tonight. But we need to plan uh, our ministry as though it were going to be another thousand years and continue to minister in that sense. Not to become so heavenly minded we're no earthly good, as someone has said. Point number nine. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, the phrase, shall be caught up. is translated from this Greek word uh, and it is in the punctiliar future. And punctilary means at a point of time in the future. And it means that at a specific point in the future, the believer will be seized by someone other than himself. This is a forceful taking it is a, a, a snatching away. And we're going to see that in another passage of Scripture that, that uh, has a very weak translation in most modern English Bibles. In that same phrase, our same verse, in verse 17, the phrase, to meet the Lord, to meet, is translated from the Greek phrase, uh, eis aponteson. And ice is a preposition meaning unto. Aponteson uh, is a compound word using the preposition apo and the word uh, tano, uh, tano, I'm sorry. and the compound word means to come into the presence of. When they're put together, they mean to leave a place and go meet one who is coming towards you. And that usage is still prevalent in modern Greek. A lot of difference in modern Greek and Koine Greek common Greek that the New Testament is written in but this phrase is the same today in modern Greek as it was in the time of Christ so when he says caught up to meet him it's talking about a a seizing forceful and removing us to meet Christ as he comes to us in the air now let me pass around this second whoops outline if you have any question at that point I'd be glad to attempt to field it or uh, we can uh, get through this second outline and see where you are by then again remember and I and I am never comfortable in doing an overview of a doctrine uh, I'm one of those individuals that I want to know what it says how it applies and I want to know why uh, it, it, it does, and I, so I'm always uncomfortable when I don't have the time in a particular study to to deal in detail with a doctrine that we are overviewing, but uh, time just at this point doesn't seem to allow that, so if you'll bear with me. In this outline, I'm attempting to give some reasons why the church does not go into the tribulation. We've kind of looked at an overview of the the doctrine of the rapture but but to pinpoint some reasons why the church does not go into the tribulation. I've said that I am a pre-tribulationist. That is, I believe the rapture will occur before the tribulation. There are those who believe it will occur in the middle of the tribulation and those, there are those who believe it will occur at the end of the tribulation. Uh, some of the reasons uh, that firm up my position I have given here uh, very briefly uh, for our examination this evening. Number one, the church and Israel are two separate entities representing Christ on the earth. Now, again, that goes back to the doctrine Real Israel and what doing with the church. Others, will we'll want to apply what is said to Israel to the church and I see them as certainly being distinct and, and those that are dispensationalists also do that. Number two the tribulation is the end of the Jewish administration under the law and so it follows then the church is not present. If if the Jews are the administrators, if they're the stewards then the church is not present. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 uh says after these things, hereafter, things which must be hereafter, as it talks about after the history of the church. Number three, the one hundred and forty four thousand evangelists in the tribulation are Jehovah's Witness. Oh no, that's not what it says. They're Jews. And Revelation chapter 7 verse 4 identifies that. Uh, the Jews are the stewards and the the 144 evangelists are Jewish stewards who are responsible uh, for the dissemination of the gospel during the tribulation. The church no longer has a responsibility of evangelism. And of course, the logical reason that it doesn't is because it's not here. If the church were here, uh, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, uh, we have a great commission go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you and boy i'm with you even uh, lord i'm with you always even to the end of the world and actually says unto the end of the age the end of the age the particular commission is not uh, then that we are to be the evangelist throughout the history of the world until the end of the world but to the end of the age and that relates to The disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who make up the church. So during the tribulation, it's not church that's doing the evangelization, it's Jewish evangelists. In the first three and a half years, 144,000. In the last three and a half years, two particular witnesses we introduced uh, earlier as Moses and Elijah. Point four. Seven times the phrase, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches is used in the book of Revelation up to Revelation 3.22. The next time the phrase let him hear what the Spirit saith, typo, uh, the next time that occurs is in Revelation 13.9. And there it doesn't include the phrase unto the churches. Just let him hear what the Spirit saith. therefore, the church apparently is not present, indicating that the church has been removed before the tribulation begins, the events of chapter 7 through 19. Number five. The phrase after this in Revelation 4 1, speaking of the church age of Revelation 2 3, I will show thee things from hereafter, that is, during the tribulation. Number six. The church is pictured in heaven as a sea of glass in Revelation 4.1. The word sea refers to people. Revelation 15.2 helps us identify that. And it pictures the church at rest. That's why glass uh, is symbolic of being uh, calm or at rest. And the, sea, the church is identified in Revelation 4.1 uh, before the throne of God, a sea of glass at rest. Uh, 4 6. I'm sorry. I cite you to James chapter 3, verse 2. All teachers make many mistakes. Uh, it is 4 6. Thank you. Revelation 4 6. To make that correction. Point number 7. In Revelation 16 6. The, terms, the term saints and prophets is Jewish nomenclature. That's not used during the church age, saints and prophets. It's Jewish terminology and never is used in relationship to the church age. So that's evident that we're talking about a Jewish dispensation, not a church dispensation. In Revelation 13, 6, the phrase, them that dwell in heaven in the context refers the church-age believers. And so they are dweller, dwelling in heaven at that time, not on the earth. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is one that we need to look at in a little detail. So if you'll turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, let's just look at it and some of the things that are dealt with there. We'll begin with verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2 I mentioned earlier that Paul had taught the doctrine of end times to the church at Thessalonica while he was there he wrote them the letter 1 Thessalonians later and reminded them and reviewed some of the things he had said he writes them again in 2 Thessalonians because some of them had become very upset they Thought they were in the tribulation, the events that were occurring seemed to indicate that they were in the tribulation, and they were extremely upset about it because the dead in Christ were to have to have risen before that occurred, and here they were. They thought in the middle of the tribulation. Not only did they did they think that, but they had received a letter, a forgery, that had been signed. Supposingly by the Apostle Paul, indicating they were in the tribulation. And so Paul's writing this letter to straighten them out on that issue. And in the second, ver- second chapter, he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. If you've got a New American Standard or NIV, yours may have read differently. The King James says the day of Christ is at hand. What's the New American Standard say? Uh, are you in Second Thessalonians too? No, no, That's why I our Good. That's really a different translation. That's good too, though. What is that? That's good too. Okay, Second Thessalonians. You want one, then? Verse 2. Two, uh, the second chapter. I'm sorry. That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as if from us to the effect that day of the Lord has come. Day of the Lord. Okay. King James English said day of Christ. New American Standard said day of the Lord. Anybody got an IV? Day of the Lord. Day Now well, two to one. The Greek says kurio, Lord. Why did they translate it Christ? Because the 10th century manuscripts said Christos. King James translation was made off of a group of manuscripts, and I think I told you that before, but I'll tell you again. King James translation was from the Greek to the English was made off of a group of Greek manuscripts that were from the 10th century. They were copied during the 10th century. They were a group of manuscripts called textus receptus which meant texts that were received by all the scholars that were working on the translation. They were considered at that time to be the best manuscripts available. But they were copied sometime during the 10th century. Where what were they were copied from they did not have at that point. We we archaeologists since that the time that the King James was translated have discovered over 5,000 manuscripts that are earlier than the fifth century and through the hand copying we have seen that there have been some minute changes in the manuscript one of which is that in the older manuscripts this was said to be the day of the Lord newer manuscript the the uh, Ten century manuscripts; it became the Day of Christ, some way or other. There is a big theological distinction. The Day of Christ refers to the millennial reign of Christ, to His kingdom reign. The Day of the Lord refers to a time of judgment and the tribulation. And so, it's important that we see that He's talking about the tribulation, the Day of the Lord. He was identifying then that some of them had really become. Disturbed because they had received this letter and had developed the idea that they were living in the day of the Lord, in the tribulation. All right, going to verse 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. We again have a problem. The term a falling away. First of all, the Greek definite article is used, the, instead of a. The Greek language does not use the indefinite article, the word a. Nowhere in the Greek language it does that word exist, a falling away they only have the definite article the and they leave it out or they add it for emphasis I say that because a number of years ago well in 1950 the Jehovah's Witness came out with their New World Translation of the New Testament and in the Gospel of John the first chapter and the first verse it says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God the Jehovah's Witness did not want to believe that Jesus was Jehovah God, and so they put the word was a God. And then they put a footnote and sent you to the bottom of the page, and the bottom of the page it said, the indefinite article in the Greek text translated a God. And then they got a whole lot of letters, (laughs) wanting to know who their Greek scholars were, that there was no indefinite article in the Greek language. And so their later edition dropped the footnote but left it a God in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God the word was the God and when they don't put the it emphasizes the quality of that noun if they put the the, it identifies specifically that one here we have the apostasy The falling away is translated from the Greek word apostasy. Well, we all know what apostasy means, don't we? It's to have embraced a faith and then walked away from it. Well, that's not all it means. Uh, It does certainly mean that. The literal definition of the Greek word means to depart from a place where you once were. Depart from one place and go to another place. And certainly... Those who have, at one point, uh, been followers of Christ and then abandon that, are apostate. But so also is the guy who leaves here in the morning and goes to work in Oakdale or San Jose or wherever. There, I just said you were apostate if you get up and go to work in the morning. No, it means you've departed from one place and go to the other. the majority of scholars the majority of scholars interpret this as being a great time of of spiritual apostasy before the tribulation however when we study the book of revelation chapter 3 the last church the laodicean church we saw it was a time when there was not a marked departure from the faith. It was just a lukewarm, indifferent, apatheticness that that prevailed. And uh, the the use of the definite article here is talking about a specific departure, and the context indicates he's talking about the rapture of the church. Not only that, but the word apostasy is in the. Uh, emphatic position in the sentence which which identifies it as being sudden and forceful. And in conjunction with that, and I think I may deal with that in the last point, on that uh, reason the church does not go into tribulation. Point nine. Second Thessalonians chapter two verses one through three declares that tribulation cannot occur until the rapture takes place. The departure is what's being said here. It's actually the snatching away that occurs. Now, the phrase except there come a falling away first is poorly translated. I've said the Greek word apostasy means a departure, and in the context of verse 7, it is used with the phrase, until he, the indwelling Holy Spirit, during the church age be taken out of the way. And This phrase is emphatic and, it should say, indicates a passive action upon the church age believer being snatched away, not falling away. Passive voice is used in the context of his being taken, uh, of, of their being taken, not of their going. If it was a departure from the faith, that would be something that you would have to do. That would be active voice. You would be doing the action of going away. But if it's passive voice, you're taken away. But in the context, then this is a snatching away when the church is snatched away. He said that day of the day of the Lord, the tribulation can't come except the snatching away occurs first. And uh, then he goes on in the text. Look with me then back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this time verse 4. Well, let, let me finish verse 3. For that day shall not come except there come the snatching away or the, the, the sudden taking away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Talking about the the Antichrist. Who opposeth all, or who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Antichrist, in the first three and a half years of tribulation, is going to seem like a good guy. Kind of like Gorbachev's coming off. (laughs) To a lot of people today not all of us praise God but to, to a lot of people as yes, a good guy uh, this is going to be dick not not out of rush he's going to be the dictator of the revived Roman Empire and we're going to start getting into that next week Lord willing uh, but the first three and a half years he's going to be a seem to be a good guy he's going to establish a covenant with it with Israel in a relationship with them however at the end of the three and a half years he is going to place a statue of himself in the temple in Israel and demand to be worshipped as God. And uh, the sacrifices at that point that will have resumed in the first three and a half years of the tribulation by the Jews will be will end and he will set himself up as God. And that's what this is talking about and we'll get into details a little later. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Then Paul says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Don't you remember what I told you? Now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the ministry of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let. And your modern translation probably said, he who now hinders will hinder. Let and hinder seem to be opposites. Again, we have that colloquial use." Uh, change in, in language. This verse is talking about the Holy Spirit indwelling the believers during the church age. In the church age, from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church, every born again child of God is permanently indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The moment you receive Jesus Christ as a person, the Holy Spirit moved in. Now, we make a distinction between being indwelled and being filled or controlled just because the Holy Spirit lives in you does not mean He controls you. With your free will, you determine whether your old nature controls or whether the Holy Spirit controls you. When the Holy Spirit controls you, the fruit of the Spirit is produced in your life, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23. When your old nature controls you, then there are other illegitimate children that are produced in your uh, your life. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell the believers. He only indwelled specific believers to perform specific tasks and could be and was many times taken away. The Holy Spirit was placed upon King Saul as the first king of Israel to indwell him, to uh, equip him to be the kind of king he needed to be, but he kept saying know to what the Holy Spirit had to say and God removed the Holy Spirit from Saul to the point that in the end of his life he even went to a, a witch to try to get some information because God wasn't talking to him anymore and he needed to know what to do about the battle. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, prayed, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I heard a noted television evangelist prayed that on national television when he had been uh, revealed to have been involved in, in uh, immorality. He went on national television and prayed take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's not possible during the church age. It was possible during the age of Israel. Not possible during our age. Holy Spirit is permanent in the life of the believer. It's only when the church is taken out and we move back to the end of the Old Testament period, the the completion of the Jewish age, that there is then the indwelling of specific believers to perform specific function. And he could be taken away. So that's what's being spoken of here in the passage. Remember uh, Samson. The Holy Spirit indwelled him only on occasion to do specific work. And I had a lot of fun with this passage with with my legalistic Baptist uh, preacher friend down in Southern California who believed that uh, a man's hair determined how spiritual he was. And that if you could not see the scalp above the ears of a man, that he was not spiritual, that he was out of fellowship with God. Uh, That he had to have short hair, and short by his standard was to be able to see the scalp above the ear. And uh, I had a little fun in pointing out to him that The only time the Holy Spirit came on Samson was when Samson's hair was long. (laughs) When Samson got a haircut, no Holy Spirit. Well, that was Old Testament anyway, but I didn't point that point out to him, you know. Hmm. So the Holy Spirit is holding and hindering the work of the Antichrist and of Satan today. Take the church out, and it's going to break loose. And we're going to be seeing that a little later. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. It's already working. Only he who now hinders will continue to hinder until it's taken out of the way and then shall that wicked one be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So Paul told the, told the church at Thessalonica the day of the Lord can't come until that departure this specific departure this snatching away occurs don't you remember I told you about that before and we harmonize that then with what we've read in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and we see that the church is taken out before the tribulation begins. That began in the early verses of chapter, the, the first verse of chapter four of Revelation one, uh, excuse me, of Revelation four, the first verse uh, as well. I'm going to show you now the things that will take place hereafter. I apologize for that being brief uh, and not documented as well as I would like to have it documented, but I just want to make that overview. Uh, in our present study. Go back to Revelation chapter 4 then. In the minute and a half that I've got left, let's see if I can tie some things together. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard, was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, here, and I will show the things which was follow which must be hereafter and immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was set in heaven and one sat upon the throne and he that sat would look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone uh, and there was a rainbow round about the throne and in sight like unto him uh, in sight like unto an emerald the description is given here the jasper and the uh, sardius actually is the uh, Greek rendering of that word refers to the uh, beautiful character that, that is displayed there. And we're going to come back a little later and look at some of the symbolisms that are found here. I want to, to move tonight to the rainbow, round about the throne. Remember we talked earlier about the seven colors of the rainbow. Now each one of them represented one of the seven attributes of God symbolically. And here he saw that rainbow we, we see the, the attributes of God being uh, manifest in uh, the seven spirits and we see it manifest in the seven colors of the rainbow but the predominant color of this rainbow is green. green was, you remember, the color of eternity, his eternalness and it is the eternalness and the things of eternity that are being dealt with here. That's why, though there is a rainbow, the predominance is the green, because we're looking at the things of eternity and the eternal issues uh, as they're being focused upon. And then, he says, round out the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. The word elders is translated from the Greek word presbyteros, presbyteros, by the way that's where we get the denominational term Presbyterians. They function with a board of elders and uh, other churches do too but that denomination uh, is noted called Presbyterians because they work with a presbytery or elders that govern the church. This term is used of angels, of a particular type of angel in Scripture, of authoritative angels that have uh, an administration of ruling. It is also used of church age believers. There are those who would interpret the four the twenty four elders as being the twelve apostles. And uh, in the New Testament and then of relating to uh, patriarchs of the Old Testament. But the word elder is not used in Old Testament reference. It's only used in New Testament terminology and eros is used in relationship to angels as well and the predominance of its usage is to angels. My personal view is and I'm not dogmatic on this understand but my personal leaning is that this is a reference to 24 specific angels of rank and authority that are set there in heaven whose chief administration it is to control the governments of the world and that's just my own leaning uh, others hold that view and then others take the other views that I have presented to you. Can't be dogmatic because I just haven't found anything to be dog. They, they can give me that dogmatic evidence here, and so I have to leave it at that. the uh, The fact that they are clothed in white raiment and had on their heads crowns of gold is interesting because the word crowns there are two type crowns in the scripture. One is a diadem, and uh, the other is uh, stephanos. A diadem is, is the crown of authority and rule. A stephanos is a crown of reward for service. And these are stephanoses. The white raiment is also used in Scripture in reference saints. Of the church age and so those who hold that position uh, use those two terms as being applied to the church and certainly they do uh, but they're also used in in a sense toward angels so uh, I I just cannot be dogmatic in verse 5 it says out of the throne proceed lightnings and thunders and voices lightnings and thunders and voices are all symbols of judgments and we'll be looking at that later on and there were seven lamps of fire again seven attributes of God uh, in the in the tabernacle and later the temple there was the golden abra, or uh, the golden candlestick candelabra it had seven candles in it representing the seven attributes of God so these were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which it says are the seven spirits of God, reference to the seven uh, attributes of God. Before the throne was a sea of glass, likened unto crystal, and that's the church, as we see it before the throne in heaven. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes before and behind, and the first living creature like a lion, the second like a calf or an ox, literally, the third like a, the face of a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. And these four living creatures, each one of them had six wings about him. Some of the angels in heaven, the seraphims, for instance, have six wings. Remember Isaiah said uh, he saw the throne of God and the seraphim was there and, and they had six wings with two they covered their face and with two they covered with th- their feet and with two they did fly. Uh, there are different kinds of angels. Not all angels are the same. There are different ranks of angels and different descriptions of angels. And this would, uh, these living creatures, uh, seem to be in form much like the seraphim angels that are there, but they are they are distinct and they are before the on of God. Uh, they have eyes uh, within and without, uh, manifesting uh, an awareness or knowledge or an observance that is occurring. And they are constantly singing, Holy, 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 Lord God God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when these four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders throw their thrones, their Stephanos, their hoarded laurel wreaths before uh, the throne of the one that is upon the throne and worship him. That liveth forever and ever, and they cast their, throne, their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise, for thou, was, thou hast created all things. Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. The second person of the Godhead is the creator of all things. Uh, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2 says, same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was nothing made that was made. Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of God, is the one who did the act of creation. And uh, he is identified here in this passage. Uh, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, what are these four living creatures? They represent the four aspects of Christ. Very interesting parallel. The writer Ezekiel identifies these same in this order, in the book of Ezekiel. In the New Testament, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels are not four different opinions about the ministry of Christ. they each represent a particular aspect about Christ. The book of Matthew was written to Jews. It presents Jesus Christ as King. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The four living creatures are symbolized by a lion, an ox, a man, And a flying eagle in biblical symbolism the lion represents a king the ox represents a servant the man represents humanity and the flying eagle represents deity those four living creatures are before the throne of God for they represent his role as king as servant, as man, and as God. Matthew presents Jesus Christ as king, a lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark goes the opposite direction. He presents Jesus Christ as the servant, the ox. They're not contradictory. There are distinct roles that are harmonized in the ministry of Jesus as he came to the earth. Luke presents Jesus Christ in his humanity. You'll find more detail about the human side of Jesus in the gospel of Luke than all the other gospels. Detail about his physical birth, about his conception, about his physical birth, all of those things. Because Luke presents the humanity of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the Apostle John takes the opposite view and presents the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the lion, the ox, the man, and the flying eagle are presented in the four Gospels. The lion and Matthew. All throughout the Gospel of Matthew, emphasis upon King 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 as a matter of fact in the gospel of Matthew you have a genealogy tracing the lineage or the genealogy of Christ back to David because the Davidic promise and covenant was that God would send a descendant of David to sit upon the throne of David forever And so, when you look at the genealogy in Matthew, it's to trace Jesus back to David. There's only one other gospel that has a genealogy, and that's Luke. And we said Luke presents the humanity of Jesus. And Luke's genealogy traces Jesus Christ back to David, but goes all the way back to Adam. (laughs) Because he's showing the humanity Matthew is showing he has the right to the throne of David. He is the descendant of David. Luke is saying he was as much man as we are. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam brings life. The promise the seed of the woman would triumph over Satan. That has become a reality through the seed of the woman. Interestingly enough, the genealogy in Matthew is traced not through Mary but through Joseph. The genealogy in Luke is traced not through Joseph, but Mary. There's some question about the genealogy of Jesus being traced through Joseph in Matthew because Joseph was not the earthly father. Let me rephrase that. Joseph was not the human father of Jesus. However, Jesus, through the line of Mary, could not claim the throne Of David because that's the wrong sonship that's the wrong line to go through the line from which Mary came from David was not the kingly line the kingly line is through Joseph God had promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever through that line there came one of his descendants by the name of Jeconiah, also identified in scripture as Coniah, to whom God said, none of your seed will ever sit upon the throne. And it seemed like God had got himself in a box. <laughs> because he promised David, through the kingly line, a king that will rule forever. And when he got down the line a little further, Jeconiah said, nope, no longer. They'll never be a descendant view sit upon the throne. But God worked it out. He brought Jesus into the world through Mary, a descendant of David, but with no right to the throne. But Joseph took Mary as his wife and accepted Jesus as his son. And Joseph had legal rights to the throne. And so Jesus claimed the throne through Joseph his legal earthly father but bypassed the sin of Jeconiah through the virgin birth of Mary and was able to fulfill that and will sit upon the throne of David forever so Matthew deals with him as king and if you study the gospel of Matthew remembering it's written to the Jews not to the church now remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable okay? for doctrine, for inspiration, for correction, etc. There are principles that we can learn from Matthew, but not direct application. When I first started pastoring, I pastored the First Southern Baptist Church at Kansas City when I was 16 years old. And through my, the rest of my junior year, my senior year, a year after I got out of high school, before I went on to college. And the Bible that I use during that period of time, the Gospel of Matthew is worn out. That's what I preach from. <laughs> I guess I need to go back and straighten them out. Application after application after application I made from the Gospel of Matthew. Well, the principles were sound, but the direct application is to the Jews. Matter of fact, much that we find there in the middle of that when he talks about the coming of the Lord has nothing to do with the rapture. Has to do with the tribulational events and the second advent of the Lord, and we can only understand that when we recognize to whom it was written, and that it was written to establish the kingly role of Christ. And so there is before the throne of God day and night a living creature manifesting the kingly role of Christ. The Gospel of Mark is written to manifest the servant role, He who came King deprived himself of his kingly authority and took upon himself the form of a servant or a slave and fulfilled the law for us and died for us and provides intercession for us today. And so when you read the Gospel of Mark, read it with that servant role in view. And before the throne of God there is a living creature that manifests that servant role of Christ. And in Luke's physical manifestation of Christ as man written to the Greeks because the Greeks believed that Jesus was not really flesh and blood. He was God in a physical appearance that looked like flesh and blood but not really flesh and blood and so Luke straightens them out and he manifests the physical human side of Christ. And then John, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is expressed from verse (laughs) 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and you find all the way through that gospel account. No contradictions, a beautiful blend of the four aspects of Christ. And, and by harmonizing the four gospels and understanding those four living creatures before the throne, we can really begin to get a full grasp of Christ. What he was all about, and what his work is continuing to be. King and servant man and God the four living creatures present that view constantly before the throne of God when, when the men sit down to put canon of scripture together I've, I've never read where there was any reference back to the order that they put Matthew Mark Luke and John but that's the exact order that is found in Ezekiel and that's the exact order that it's found in Revelation and when Revelation was written that order had not yet been established that king and servant, man and God. So the four living creatures are a manifestation of that. Try as Christian asking about the genealogy through Joseph and because he took Mary as his wife, he was in a sense adopted Jesus. Right. that's why we could be ad we're adopted, we are adopted into the family because that am I or I'm putting something in No, you're putting something that doesn't fit. Um uh, the word adopted in the New Testament does not mean what we associate it with meaning today to take a child that was really born of someone else and make him your child legally it means to recognize your flesh and blood son at age 14 of being a mature adult giving him five specific privileges that he could not have without that ceremony the, the word adoption means the placing of a son and it came to mean the placing of someone else's son to be your son. But in the in the time that Paul uses it, he, we're born into the family of God. We're not adopted into the family, but we are adopted in that we're given five privileges that only adopted sons, placed sons, were given: the privilege of uh, going on the father's checking account, drawing upon the assets of the family; the privilege of inheritance; the privilege of marriage, the privilege of going to war, and of a voice in family affairs. When a boy was 14 years old, the father took the robe of, of adolescence off of him in a ceremony and put the robe that called the togas virilis on him, the robe of manhood. And at 14, he became a mature adult. And he went on the family checking account. Got any 14-year-olds you don't put on your family checking account? Uh, but he, they matured them faster than we do. We want to mother them. I like that word mother because that leaves us guys out of it. We want to hold them in the nest, don't you know, until they're way beyond that. We need to mature them a little quicker. But in the ancient world, 14, they were a mature adult. Get married, go to war, do all those things at that point. So that's what adoption means in the New Testament. It was important for Joseph to receive Jesus as his own. And though there was no formal ceremony in which he did that, the fact that he did not put Mary alive like he intended to do until the angel Gabriel appeared to him and and informed him what was going on. His accepting him gave him every legal right that a flesh and blood son had, and that right was to the throne. All right, other question? Okay, next week then we will uh, jump in and... uh, that fifth chapter look at the seven soul seven sealed scroll which is the key to revelation and uh do an overview of the tribulational period and we have outlines already around for that so we look forward to that thank you Gary.